Lord Jesus, uh, as the world waited in expectation for your first coming, and as your church waits again now for your second advent, Lord, we, your people, come before you and wait with expectation to hear a word from you this morning. Lord, please come now and in the power of your Holy Spirit, answer the cry of our deepest longing to hear a word from God that will strengthen us in our walk and encourage us in our faith. Lord, and it will prepare us to meet you when you come again in glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are two weeks out from Christmas, from joy and fulfillment, and so where does the scripture from Matthew's gospel land us today? Well, of course, in prison. <laughs> in prison with John the baptizer. And if that isn't depressing enough, the hinge verse in this passage is actually from John. Are you the one, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, in other words, this is a narrative about doubt and disillusionment and disappointment. And folks, many people have a profound experience of doubt and disappointment around this time of year. Every marketer, every marketer, every marketer in the world has turned their collective power of persuasion on the American public to say, be happy, be jolly, be nostalgic, be sentimental. Look, here are some pictures of people who are in love and who are about to get engaged. You know those pictures. Uh, there are some pictures of multiple generations of a family sitting down and smiling at each other across the table. No one is, no one is anxious in that picture. I don't know who cooked that meal, but nobody's mad at anybody, but they're all sitting there looking at each other and smiling across the table that is about to collapse from the weight of the Christmas feet. And the marketers tell us, you can have this too if you buy our stuff. And the joggernaut of enforced obligatory merriment just makes those dealing with significant loss and loneliness in their lives right now all the more acutely aware of the places where life is empty and where the life is painful. Now, for many of us, this will be the first Christmas around the table without a special loved one that has been taken by death. Uh, for others, fractured family relationships are poignantly felt at Christmas time because those wonderful pictures that we see from the marketers of families all happy together really don't look like a lot of our families. For others, just looking around and seeing other people seemingly have a jolly and joyful Christmas is out of step with our particular experience of the season. And so maybe this passage about disappointment and disillusionment is not a bad place to land on the third Sunday of Advent after all. And the disappointment and confusion experienced by John the baptizer is particularly painful because it has to do, it has to do with his losing confidence in Jesus. John's expectations of Jesus were not working out. And because of that, John's experience is relevant to ours because if we are honest, this Jesus thing is not working out for many of us the way we thought it should. So that's what I want us to address this morning. I want us to address this question. It's really the question John asked from prison. Did I make a mistake embedding my life on Jesus? 
And to understand how John had come to the point where he is sitting in prison doubting whether Jesus is legit or not, we need to go back to last week's gospel text and see and, uh, to see and hear what John's expectation of Messiah was. Here's what John was expecting. This is John's message. He's preaching this. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. fire. That's right. <laughs> John was expecting the Messiah to come and open up a can of almighty uh, God's judgment on the wicked. John sees Messiah's role as separating the righteous from the wicked so that the wicked may be judged by fire. In fact, he manages to mention fire three times. The fire of God's judgment. He manages to mention that three times in just three short verses. Evidently, John sees Messiah as God's own pyromaniac. But instead of bringing fiery judgment, Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry in chapter 4, all the way up to where we are in chapter 11, has been on a rampage of healing the sick and those who are possessed by demons, of raising the dead, and of forgiving and even going to parties with sinners. This is not what John expected. There is no fire called down from heaven whatsoever. And what's more, John the forerunner is sitting in jail for speaking God's word of judgment against King Herod's moral and political corruption. John is rotting in jail and Jesus is feasting with tax collectors. And John is kind of saying, uh, Jesus, uh, cousin, how about showing a little love this way and delivering me from this wicked man? Here's the disconnect. Here's where the point of confusion comes for John. John obviously was expecting God's kingdom to break in with final judgment, and instead, God's reign, God's rule, God's rule over the earth was being expressed in a completely unexpected way. John is basically saying, Jesus, I bet my life on you, and now I'm in jail, and you aren't running the world the way I expected. Jesus was not meeting John's expectations. And brothers and sisters, if we are very honest, he often doesn't meet our expectations either. William A. Ritter, who lost his 27-year-old son to suicide, writes, I don't know where life may be defeating you this Advent. I don't know how Jesus may be disappointing you this Advent. But I would suggest to you this Advent that any disillusionment you may feel may not necessarily be a bad thing. For what is disillusionment if not literally the loss of an illusion? And in the long run, it is never a bad thing to lose the lies we have mistaken for the truth. Did Jesus fail to come when you rubbed the lantern? Well, then perhaps Jesus is not a genie. Did Jesus fail to punish your enemies? Then perhaps Jesus is not a cop. Did Jesus fail to make everything run smoothly? Then perhaps Jesus is not a mechanic. Over and over again, our disappointments 
Ritter writes, draws, draw us deeper and deeper into who Jesus really is and what Jesus really does. What John couldn't understand, what John didn't understand, and what we often don't understand is that when Jesus came among us, he began what we call the between times. Prior to the first coming of Jesus, almost everyone in Judaism expected that the present evil age, we hear this clearly in Malachi. Malachi in his prophecies, the last prophet in the, in the Old Testament says, the day of the Lord is coming. It's a coming with like a fierce, like the heat of a furnace. It's a day of darkness and not light, a terrible day. And so prior to the coming of Jesus, most Jews expected that this present evil age would abruptly be brought to a close by that day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord looked pretty much exactly like what John was describing in his preaching. It was a day of terrifying judgment when God's enemies would be destroyed and God's people would be vindicated and they would enter into God's kingdom of everlasting shalom. But instead of the kingdom breaking in with the day of judgment, the kingdom of God began to break in as Jesus healed and raised the dead and forgave sinners. No one was expecting it to be like that. Not just John. And yes, as we hear throughout the season of Advent, there will come a day of judgment, but God is so merciful, God is so loving that we are now in this unexpected, wonderful season of grace in which God is seeking not to destroy the wicked, but to transform them by his love expressed in Jesus Christ into his very own children. And that is why I am standing in front of you right this minute. But John wanted to jump ahead to the consummation of the kingdom. Let's get right to the end of the age and let the apocalyptic smackdown begin. And when things didn't turn out the way he expected, he became confused and disillusioned. And so John sends messengers to Jesus to ask if somehow he has made a mistake. And Jesus just draws John's attention. Now, it's interesting that when Matthew starts this passage in verse 2, Matthew 11, verse 2, it says, Now, when John was in prison and he heard the deeds of the Christ. In other words, Matthew is saying this, he is pointing out Jesus' deeds and that he is, in fact, Messiah, the deeds of the Messiah. When John hears about this and he sends those messengers to Jesus, Jesus simply draws John's attention right back to the very things that were causing John to question him in the first place. Jesus says, John, look at all the unexpected things I'm doing. <clears throat> Aren't these wonderful? Isn't the kingdom breaking in here as much as it would be if I brought fire? I know I'm not bringing down fire on the wicked, but I'm raising the dead. John, isn't that even more glorious than what you had anticipated? I know I'm not sending sinners to eternal torment, but I'm liberating them from the shackles of sin, and they themselves are becoming righteous. Isn't that more miraculous than chucking the wicked immediately into hell? And at the end of the litany of how Jesus is bringing in God's kingdom, he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended is, is kind of a, a soft word compared to what it actually says in the text. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. And in some translations, I think it reads more correctly, 
based on the context, based on the connotation. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of who I really am. Scandalon is a stumbling block. You know, there's a little step. Uh, If you come right off the city sidewalk and you turn to come up the front steps of the Christchurch sidewalk, uh, this came up in our council meeting this uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. There's a little step there, and people get so focused on to going into church that they don't expect that step to be there. They don't watch for that step. And there's people here right now, I'm not going to ask them to, but could say amen. <laughs> and several people have fallen there. Jesus says, happy is the person who does not stumble over what I'm actually doing because they're so focused on what they think I should be doing. I know that for some of us, maybe most of us, life is not working out the way we expected. And some of us are so far along in life as to figure that this is probably not going to change. So let me ask you outright, are you disappointed with God? Is life not turning out the way you expected? Well, brothers and sisters, I want to gently suggest that we take our eyes off of what we had planned that God should be doing and look around at what he really is doing. If you wanted him to bring judgment, and instead Jesus is healing and raising the dead and delivering people from the power of evil, wouldn't that be okay with you? But there's something even more startling here. Ultimately, Jesus did not bring judgment against sin. Well, actually, here's the really startling thing. Ultimately, Jesus did bring judgment against sin. But he did it in a way that nobody expected in his first advent. He did it on the cross. Instead of sending the wrath of God on sinners, Jesus took the wrath of God on himself. No one expected that. No one anticipated that. Will there come a day of judgment, the day that John foretold? Yes, there will, but... Those who fall under that judgment will have to push their way past the outstretched arms of Jesus by rejecting his love and forgiveness. The day of the Lord will come, but but in the between times, God is still turning the world upside down with doing unexpected things, with showing Christ-like self-sacrificing love through his people. I just read a story by Nick Nick Ripken. It's not real. It sounds like a not. It's a real. Not a real name. It's because it's not his real name. Um, Nick Ripken. It sounds like like a Santa's elf would be named Nick Ripken. But but uh, Nick Ripken had to use a different name because he has spent so many years doing ministry in the Muslim world, and in particularly, he spent a decade of sacrificially serving as a missionary in Somalia, a radicalized Muslim-failed state. And after years of sacrifice and living dangerously for the Lord, he saw almost zero fruit from his mission work. 
And then at the end of that time, when he and his family were back in Nairobi, Kenya, away from the front lines in Somalia, his 16-year-old son, Timothy, had an asthma attack and on the way to the hospital died. And at that point, um, Nick basically asked, Jesus, are you the one I was expecting or should I wait for another? He was ready to throw in the towel. This is not what he expected from a life of radical obedience to Jesus. I have a friend right now, a dear friend right now, this day, who spent his, from 2004 until basically 2013, sacrificed his life in, in, in a really transformational mission work in a far-flung location that I won't mention. But because of a wicked man and a corrupt denominational system, the man who started this mission and was bearing great fruit had the mission, the ministry he began, taken from him. He had lived sacrificially and and his reward was to be removed from leadership. He feels that way too sometimes. This is not what Ripken expected from a life of radical obedience to Jesus. Jesus, are you the one we should look for, or is there another? And so he went on a quest to find Christians who had remained faithful to Christ and confident in Jesus Christ in the midst of unspeakable hardship. And that quest led him to a life-changing encounter with a Russian pastor who he calls Dimitri, not his real name, who had been imprisoned in the waning years of the former USSR. And the story runs like this. Dimitri uh, sat down, actually, with Ripken and told him the story of his life. Because As Ripken went out to these small Russian villages, he went into other locations as well. He told him the story of his life. He said that back in the waning years of the USSR, he was a factory worker. His wife was a school teacher. He had begun to uh, teach his sons the, uh, the Bible stories that he had learned from his father. You know, it's the Soviet Union. Communism is uh, officially oppressing Christianity. It's an official state atheistic uh, system. And so his sons begin to learn the scriptures, and his sons begin to learn the Bible songs that he had learned when he was growing up, some great Russian hymns that he had learned when he was growing up. And he begins to read the Bible to the children. And and because it's a small village, people find out what's going on. And so some people say, can we come over? And before you know it, there's 20 people in this tiny little house. And before you know it, there's 50 people in this tiny little house. And at that point, the the KGB cannot ignore what's going on any any longer. And so they begin to make threats against uh, Pastor Dimitri. You are not allowed to have a church in your house. He said, I don't have a church. People are just coming. I'm not a pastor. They threaten him. They warn him. Eventually, 75 people are meeting in his house. And, uh, and one evening, when all these people are gathered and their folks who are actually standing around the outside of the house, the windows are open, Dimitri is teaching, they're learning, they're singing songs of praise, and at that moment, the back door of the house gets kicked open, a KGB colonel with several of his uh, thugs comes marching in, he takes uh, Pastor Dimitri by the front of his shirt and begins to rhythmically slap him in the face back and forth, he shoves him against the wall, he says, I've warned you and I've warned you, we'll know... There will be no more warnings. And as he is stomping out of the front door, a little old Russian grandmother steps out of the anonymity of the crowd 
and she takes her bony arthritic finger and she places it, she's tiny, she places it under the face of this 43-year-old KGB colonel and she shakes her finger and she says, you have laid your hands on the man of God and you will not survive. That happened on a Tuesday night. That KGB colonel died of a heart attack on Thursday. The fear of God swept through that village. The next time they gathered, there were 150 people. And of course, the inevitable happened. The door was kicked in. Pastor Dimitri was, was dragged away and sent hundreds of kilometers to the north to prison. He was placed in a prison of 1,500 hardened convicts. Uh, he was the, as far as he knew, he was the only believer there. He was routinely beaten and tortured for 17 years. He would take tiny little scraps of paper. Every time he found like a gum wrapper, he would take a piece of charcoal or a pencil nub and he would write all the scripture he could remember and he would take that scripture and he would, he would there was a, a seeping column of, a concrete column where water and this kind of sewagey stuff was seeping out. It would freeze in the winter. But he would reach as high as he could and he would take those scripture verses and he would stick them on those columns as an offering to God, an offering of the word of God back to God. Every time he found a scrap of paper, he would do that. And every morning, this is the other thing he did to keep his faith during this time. Every morning at sunrise, he would stand to attention at the side of his bed in this tiny, tiny little cell. He would raise his arms in praise, face east, and begin to sing his heart song, a great Russian hymn, Oh God, give me strength. He did it every day. The criminals in the, in the, in the prison responded like you think they would. They would rattle their cups against the bars of their cages. They would throw trash and old food and human waste at him and curse him. And for 17 years, this went on. They couldn't break Pastor Dimitri. Finally, they found a woman, a, a, a convicted criminal, a, a criminal lady. They went and they literally stole clothes from Dimitri's wife. This woman had the same body shape and fairly similar in appearance to Dimitri's wife. And they told him they were going to kill his wife. And they drugged this woman who looked like her with her back turned towards him, dressed in his wife's clothes, past the cell. And for three days in the torture cell, they tortured her. He could hear the screams of this woman crying out. And finally, they executed her with a gunshot. And that was it. He was broken. Are you the one I was expecting or is there somebody else? I think there's somebody else. So he called out. He said, I'll sign the confession. That's all he had to do was renounce his faith, sign, faith, sign a confession that he was influenced by Western um, governments and, and that he would be released from prison. I'll sign your confession. The guard said, we'll have to go and we'll have to uh, compose this overnight. We'll be back in the morning. He said, I don't care. So that night he goes to bed. He's, he's absolutely crushed. And as he's lying in bed, the Holy Spirit 
enables something to happen that was truly miraculous. Hundreds of kilometers away, his wife, his two sons, and his brother were burdened with the reality that something terrible was happening to Dimitri. And so they gathered in that home where that church had met, and they gathered in a circle, and they knelt on the floor, and they began to cry out to God, Oh, God! Help Dimitri, save Dimitri. And they sang, the, they sang his heart song. And he heard, the Holy Spirit allowed him to hear his family praying for him. I've had friends who, to whom this has happened. This happens. Well, the next morning, Dimitri was a different man. The guards came in. He was ramrod straight. His eyes were on fire. And he said, you have lied to me. The Spirit of God revealed to me that my wife is alive and my children are okay and they love me and they're praying for me. Now get out of my cell. He was out on the parade ground, on the exercise ground that day and another miracle happened. There was a whole sheet of paper (laughs) and a pencil. And he began to write all the scripture he could remember and every hymn he could remember on that, on that piece of paper. And then he took that piece of paper, that big piece of paper, and he stuck it as high as he could on that column. And, of course, the guards saw it, and, of course, they drug him out, and, of course, they beat him. And they determined that was all they were going to take from Dimitri. He would be executed. And the day of his execution, they opened the doors. They began to drag him out. And all of a sudden, sudden something un, un, um, unexpected Something amazing happened. 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention at their bedsides, faced east, put their hands in the air, and as a vast male Russian chorus sang the hymn that Dmitri had sung every morning for 17 years. The guards were terrified. They took their hands off of them. They said, who are you? He said, I am a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Shortly after that, he was released. And not long after that, Dmitri's son, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, became the chaplain of that prison. Are you the one we expected, or should we look for someone else? Brothers and sisters, if you are disappointed with God, why don't you look away from what you expected and look at what he is really doing? And if you're confused about what he's really doing, look at the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand as we can.